Power of Speaking, a monthly podcast on the spoken word. Episode number 74, March 2024. Folk Linguistics, a conversation with Dennis Preston. Hello, Paul Meyer here. You know, I meet such interesting people in this podcast and in my Zoom coaching too. Such a variety of people seek my help. Interview preparation, dialect and accent coaching, audiobook narration, training. People from all walks of life have a huge variety of spoken word needs. I worked with a well-known British actor this month on his first American film. He was almost perfect. So what was it that was occasionally giving him away as not born and raised in the USA? I had a hard time nailing it. He wasn't saying burn, barn, born, mother, father, etc. British style. He had the appropriate R coloration for his American character and was saying burn, barn, born, mother, father, but he was using retroflexion, curling the tongue back over itself, as they seem to do in my own first dialect, Hampshire, old Hampshire, of course. I suggested to him that instead of retroflexion, he used the so-called molar R, or tongue-bunched R, that the majority of American speakers do, according to research. So he changed his retroflex burn to molar burn, and was much more convincing. Do you hear the slight difference? Burn to burn. 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 Isn't that fascinating? I love my clients. I love my job. Quiz time. Guess that accent. Last time I played this clip from the Idea Archive and challenged you to say where on the planet the speaker grew up. Once when, when I was in um, lower school, the town got its first lights in the main road. And it was a big event for this little town that finally we get a light so now we have a red light when we drive to school. What did you think? Did you guess Israel? If so, congratulations. Yes, it was Ideas Israel 5, contributed by Noah Lev Ari. I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly. Under the supervision of senior editor David Neville. The speaker in the sample grew up in a little town 20 minutes north of Tel Aviv. Thanks again, Noah and David. To learn more about this speaker, go to the Dialects and Accents tab on the menu bar of dialectsarchive.com, then Middle East, then Israel. Now, this month's challenge. Where did this speaker spend his formative years? I've got two types of family, though. I have my nucleus family, which is of five people. Like, I've got my wife and, and, and three kids. One is adopted kid, you know, and um, an and extended one is like any other. What's your guess? Get the answer next time. Remember, if you aren't listening to me on paulmeyer.com, why not switch over now? Select, in a manner of speaking, from the Other Services menu tab, then click episode number 74. I've provided lots of extras there, not available on any other podcast channel. My guest this month is the amazing dialectologist Dennis Preston, Professor Emeritus at Oklahoma State University. He's a former president of the American Dialect Society, 
and a visiting professor at the universities of Hawaii, Arizona, Michigan, Copenhagen, and Berkeley, and a Fulbright researcher in Poland and Brazil. A man much in demand. Welcome, Dennis, to In a Manner of Speaking. Thank you. So very good to have you with us. First of all, my thanks to Betsy Evans, who a uh, uh, new executive director of the American Dialect Society, who got us together. She was last month's podcast guest, as you know, and you were her dissertation advisor and uh, her longtime mentor and uh, former president of the ADS yourself, among many other impressive credentials. Now, Betsy and I have, uh, yeah, we've been together a long time uh, since her dissertation. Yes. So I was very pleased to hear her mention your name and said, I got to see if Dennis is available and willing. So thank you so much for joining us. You and your co-author, Nancy Nijelski, uh, wrote your book, Folk Linguistics, uh, back in 2000, I believe. So does that make you uh, founders of the discipline, Folk Linguistics? We're founders of the name Folk Linguistics, uh, which, by the way, met a lot of resistance because of the misunderstanding of folk, meaning rural or countryfied or ignorant or not up to date. Uh, whereas we take the more of a folkloristic point of view. It's just ordinary people stuff. Yes. Uh, so everything you believe that's handed down sort of traditionally without uh, scientific specialization, this is folk stuff. And this means we're all folk, especially, uh, or maybe even necessarily when we step out of our own fields of specialization. So if I'm asked about nuclear physics, everything I believe about nuclear physics is folk nuclear physics. Yeah. Similarly, then, sort of everybody who isn't a linguist, uh, everything they believe uh, about linguistics is uh, folk linguistics. But we take it seriously. We believe that those are things not just to study to see how they differ from the scientific point of view, but uh, also what we can learn from it in the same ways that we learn from folk botany and folk medicine, which has saved many people's lives, in fact. People who do scientific research in medicine will tell you that some of the most important advances they've made uh, have been from investigating folk medicine, traditional medicine over the years. Uh, the same thing uh, comes true in discovery of new species, in folk zoology, uh, and in folk botany. Uh, so everywhere there's a scientific field, there is a traditional non-scientific wealth of knowledge in that field. Some of it at odds some of it partially overlapping, and some of it exactly the same and even informative. So I guess most folk would be sort of surprised that a linguist would be interested in their popularly held beliefs and a little bit flattered and curious about why that should be. I've come across some things that says that folk linguistics is primarily about exposing popularly held fallacies, but Clearly, it does so much more. There's so much more to learn, and 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 we're going to do that over this next uh, these next few minutes together. Um, but would it be okay to review some of the cherished fallacies first? Well, I suppose so. Uh, and one of the reasons we do this is not so much to expose fallacies, to, but to understand what it is that people believe about language, what they feel about language. And one of the uh, mantras of uh, folk linguistics is that it has a very serious supplied side. And that, that applied side uh, affects education. It affects attitudes to minority varieties and languages. I mean, the great Leonard Bloomfield years and years and years ago, who was a specialist in Native American languages, went to a cocktail party 
uh, where he was describing some of the information that he had about a native variety. But of course, the host of the event was a person who had had contact with these Native Americans. And as Bloomfield went on to describe the intricacies of their language, the host was said, oh, that's absolutely silly. That language has only got a couple of hundred words in it, uh, turned on his heel and ignored the great Leonard Bloomfield. It is true, this, this applied folk linguistics uh, has an educational arm to it so that we not only want to discover things uh, that are silly, like so-called primitive languages only have a couple of hundred words yeah. or that they're very simple. The same thing is be said, for example, of Creole and pidgin languages. They don't just have a couple of hundred words and they're not very simple. They might be a little more regular than so-called sophisticated languages. Yeah. Well, if, if you'll indulge me, I'm going to quote what I think are a couple of fallacies uh, okay. and, and get you to comment briefly on them. And I think you referred to this one, that, that there, are, there are certain things that are grossly misunderstood about language acquisition. How do we acquire them? Most parents think they teach their kids how to speak, but that's very simplistic, right? Well... If, if we had to teach our, our children to speak uh, before they had rational knowledge uh, and before they could look at vowel charts and, uh, and, and look, at, uh, <laughs> look at conjugations, then uh, we'd really be up the creek, wouldn't we? Children don't learn language so much as they absorb it. And of course, there are some linguists who believe uh, that we have a language organ. That over the years, and there's nothing to deny this, of course, in uh, in terms of evolution, that uh, we're we're built-in learners of language, and that some of the stuff that we need to learn about language is in fact already there. Now, there's some other linguists who viciously oppose this mm -hmm. uh, and say that uh, no, that it's it's our cognition which is applied to all other fields rather than language. But I don't have a dog in this hunt myself. Okay. So that's language acquisition. I've heard a lot of people say, oh, raising a kid bilingual is, is dangerous. It will confuse the child, the dangers of bilingualism. Could we put that among the cherished fallacies? I think so. Remember, the great majority of speakers in the world are bilingual, so unless uh, and trilingual and quadrilingual. Mm -hmm. So unless you want to put all of those people in the mentally deficient camp in some sense <laughs> or another, uh, then we would have to say, oh, no, it's really only us monolinguals uh, who don't <laughs> know another language who are the smartest people in the world. And I think we can see the silliness of that right away. Well, if, if that doesn't convince any skeptics, uh, nothing would, I feel sure. Um, another cherished fallacy is, is that there's always a correct or a standard way of talking my way. And then there's then there are dialects, substandard, incorrect, ignorant that other people speak. Want to address that briefly? I guess the whole business of standard English is more interesting from a folk linguistic point of view than it is from a linguist point of view. Because if you ask a linguist what standard English is, they sort of just scratch their heads and say, I don't know. I guess we think that middle, uh, upper middle class use uh, is standard or uh, or they say, as, as the great Roger Shai once said, oh, it's easy to define standard English. It's everything that isn't non-standard. The whole thing is that uh, linguists, of course, see standard English as a social phenomenon, which has some interesting linguistic repercussions, uh, and certainly in uh, in life, in society, affecting things like education, job getting, and so forth, the whole area of sociolinguistics, of course. Yes, 
yes, yes. Next one. These young kids just can't talk. They're mangling and ruining the language. <laughs> well, it's also in Plato's Republic. Yes. So we've been ruining languages uh, ever since classical Greek. And yet here we are, every one of us, uh, I mean, there are some people who actually have language deficiencies, uh, but, but that's serious neurological and psychological impairment. Everybody else goes around using human language to express thoughts, needs, desires, disgusts, everything we want to do, and capable of understanding what the people around us say. So the idea that uh, the next generation is taking language to hell in a handbasket has been with us for centuries and centuries. And yet, hmm, we just don't find language ever in a handbasket exactly. on its way to hell. Last one. Exposure to television causes local dialects to die out. Would you classify that as a cherished fallacy? We don't really learn our local dialect from television. We know, for example, that even the children uh, of deaf parents who watch a lot of television for their input nevertheless acquire the variety of the spoken language that's around them. We don't really, of course, become really dialect efficient until we're a little older. And then our primary learning, and we've seen this again and again and again, it goes on in those early adolescent years as we begin to form social bonds and especially as we begin to admire the people who are just a little older than us. You know, if I could only play with the big kids. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the rules of how our dialects are formed. If you just take the sentence, if I could only play with the big kids, then we can learn a lot, I think, from about not just language acquisition in the infant or child sense, but about the eventual acquisition of that vernacular form of language that we end up with very, very largely modeled in those teenage years. So exposure to mass media doesn't really change the way we talk to our friends. The way we shape a vowel isn't really going to be influenced by who's sitting in the chair at CBS News. No, we can we can sure get uh, slang pronunciations, uh, which are kind of fun to think about and talk about, but uh, but they're no different from lexical slang, right? So when we make slang noises, some of those might have been influenced by popular culture and some of them uh, hang on for a long, long time. Think of the word shit, which is a very, very interesting example. There's a slang pronunciation of shit, which is shit. And we know it's slang because if you say shit for shit, you cannot literally mean feces. You cannot step in a pile of shit. The only thing that you can use shit for is to tell somebody that what they're speaking is nonsense. That's a lot of shit, right? But <laughs> you can also, of course, say it's a lot of shit. But you cannot say, oh, I just stepped in a pile of shit. So that and kind of slang use of phonology sometimes hangs on a long time, as it has right. with this example, but some come from popular culture. And the American Dialect Society's word of the year, and shitification, of course, would never be shitification. <laughs> no. I was browsing your fine article, Folk Pragmatics. Um, yeah, I was, I was drawn immediately to your discussion of what constitutes a language and what constitutes a dialect. That caught my eye, of course, as you could imagine. Very loaded terms, right? And I think it was um, Max Weinreich who coined the idea that a language is a dialect with an army and a navy. 
meaning that those with the big guns and the money get to decide whether you're just a dialect or have the status of a language. Yeah, it's another problem that linguists don't care very much about, but folk linguists do. Yes. So folk linguists want to know the difference between a dialect and a language. For linguists, it's very problematic. It certainly does have to do with intelligibility because many speakers of the same language don't understand one another. Uh, I know that if, I, in fact, I did this in class just the other day, I played a few sentences uh, from the Sheffield area uh, mm -hmm. for my uh, American students, many of whom are from the upper American South, and they, they couldn't understand it. They, they just couldn't get the gist of it at yes. all. But they're yes. both speakers of English. So we wouldn't want to say, we want to say that these are two different dialects of English, but we'd say they're English. And yet, if we mm -hmm. go to the border of Germany and the Netherlands, for example, we find people right on the border who understand each other very, very well. And yet the people on one side are said to speak Dutch and the people on the other side are said to speak German. This, I think, shows Weinreich's uh, comment very well. It's the fact that there's a border there that you're said to speak Dutch. But that Dutch is much closer to German than it is to Dutch dialects as little as 75 or 100 miles away. Yeah. And that German is much closer to Dutch than it is to German dialects an equally small distance away. I learned from David Crystal that there's a sort of a dialect chain and that as you, cr as you travel across, say, Europe, since you brought that up, that um, in the interior of countries, you know, those dialects are different from what's on the border and that there's mutual intelligibility across uh, political borders. Uh, that's Most people think that, you know, you move from... Portugal to Spain and Spain to, to France, and suddenly there's a terrific and definable difference in the pronunciation and, and the mutual intelligibility. Oh, my goodness, no. Uh, if you start in Belgium and follow right along the coast uh, into France, you will never find two neighbors who don't understand one another. And then if you move from France into Spain, let's forget Basque for the moment. I know that there's some strangely different languages there. Uh, that uh, then nobody uh, misunderstands you. And then uh, and then as you move into Spain, then first of all, uh, you come into Galicia, which has got so many Portuguese elements in it that you just never notice when you're going from Spanish to Portuguese. Mm -hmm. And then you could come right around back into Spain, over into Italy and so forth. Now, every once in a while, you come to a national boundary where people have to be bilingual. Uh, when Slavic meets uh, Romance, for example, as it does in some places, or when Germanic meets Hungarian or, or other sorts of things, then those language chains are broken. But otherwise, as you can see, here's Belgium all the way through France, all the way through Spain, Portugal, right down into Italy, and neighbors always speak the same variety. So this really does disabuse those people who think that the language map is as hard-bordered as the political map, right? No, no. And then as we very well know, at least those of us who have, who have lived uh, in, in much of the 20th century, uh, we see those funny straight lines, the borders that were created as a result of politics and war. And we know that those borders don't have any sociocultural meaning on the ground. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I enjoyed your article, How to Trick Respondents into Revealing ah. Implicit Attitudes About Dialect Pronunciation. <laughs> How does that work? How, how are you doing your tricky linguist thing and tricking respondents into revealing their deepest, most cherished, unconscious 
prejudices? Well, some people, especially social psychologists, claim that you have to do tricky experiments to get to people's real feelings. We notice, for example, now there's a so-called implicit association test, which they value very much to find things like implicit racism. And so these social psychologists say, well, if you just talk to somebody, how do you know they're telling you the truth? Well, let's, let's, let's give them a little credit and say sometimes people do tell you the truth. But there are many, many ways of talking that we all use where we do not say, I hereby state that, but where <laughs> we presuppose things and where we implicate things mm-hmm. and the people around us understand us very well. So if you're standing in front of a soft drink machine, I'm from Louisville, Kentucky, and so I say soft drink for the pop soda Coke that exists in the rest of the country. Okay. And you look at a friend and say, have you got a dollar? What does that sentence mean? Well, it means, is there a dollar in your possession? But that's not what that sentence does. It implicates that I would like to have a dollar from you so that I can operate this stupid machine because I don't have one. So if you take conversations about language and about dialect and about areas and about sociolects and genderlects and ethnolects and just talk to people and then go in and use the formal devices of presupposition and implicature That is, what people say where they assume that you will agree with them or that they will understand you even though they didn't explicitly assert something. My contention is that that's very much like the so-called implicit association test. Those are things that people are not thinking very carefully about when they say them. And so if you get them to talk to you about a topic they're going to indulge in hundreds and hundreds of these things. And if the topic is language, then folk linguistics just jumps out at you. Yeah, yeah. Give us an example of um, how people talk about language uh, and and how they needed to be coaxed into revealing these implicit beliefs. Well, one of my favorites is a a recording that a student of mine made with an African-American family a long, long time ago. And in the middle of the conversation, he knew he wanted to sort of switch over and, and get the family to start talking about language. So he looked at the father of the family and he said, so could you tell me a little bit about your dialect? <laughs> now, at first, this just seems like an innocent question. Uh, but first of all, there is, as you know, a folk idea of dialect and a scientific idea of dialect. Dialect in folk speech very often means a not very desirable way of talking. Right. Uh, whereas dialect for linguists simply means a regionally or ethnically or genderly or agely differentiated way uh, of speaking. Now, what's interesting is that at first you just jump over this and say, oh, oh he, he did a kind of uh, insulting thing. Mm-hmm. But if you look at it carefully, you'll see that he quite innocently presupposed, and these are formal presuppositions, two things. When you say to somebody, could you tell me a little bit about your dialect? The existential presupposition, to use fancy language, is that dialects exist. You don't say to somebody, could you tell me a little bit about your unicorn? Uh, Unless you're in a (laughs) fantasy world, right? right? But another presupposition, which is a relational presupposition, 
If I say, could you tell me a little bit about your dialect? This means not only that dialects exist, but that you have one. Yes. Stuff yeah. like, do you still smoke? presupposes that you used to smoke. And we're not used to looking at language this way because these implications and presuppositions just come to us quite naturally. I'd also like to give uh, an example that comes right out of linguistics. As you know, the Linguistic Atlas Project, uh, the famous Atlas Project in the United States and Canada, now just known as the Linguistic Atlas Project, has recently moved to the University of Kentucky, uh, where my friend Allison uh, Perquette is, uh, is the director. We have been looking not only at evidence of conversations in Linguistic Atlas uh, collection, but also comments that were written by the people who did the fieldwork themselves. Uh -huh. We found lots and lots of very, very interesting comments just by searching through this commentary for the word but. And we found it again and again and again in sentences like, he was a sort of poorly educated man uh, from Eastern Kentucky, but he was really intelligent. So, yes. so what we got to do is assume that if you're from Eastern Kentucky, you're supposed to have a bunch of stereotypes and the butt tells you that these deny intelligence. Yes. So that's the kind of stuff we look for in what we started talking about as this, how to trick people. People trick themselves. We don't need to trick them. We mm -hmm. just need to talk to them about language. And then using presupposition and implicature, we dig out these little things that are really, I think you have to admit, out of your control. You just mm -hmm. say these things because you think that people are going to agree with you, presupposition, mm -hmm. or you think they're going to understand things in the way you meant them, although you didn't exactly say them that way, in the same way that people who hear a sentence like, can you pass the salt, and say yes, mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. they take it literally rather than as a request for the salt. This leads me to ask you this. Folk linguistics been around in its modern incarnation, perhaps only from the mid-60s, the 1960s. Um, so it got its start way before the issues of diversity and inclusion really came to the forefront. So do you, are you hopeful? Do you think that we've made any headway against prejudices based on dialect and accent since today's concerns about diversity and inclusion came to the fore? Are we any smarter, any cleverer, any, any better human being? Or is it too early to say? We're doing the best we can. Truth is that some places like the Southern Poverty Law Center and others have begun to incorporate language prejudices into part of their general attack on all sorts of uh, racism, sexism, and other sorts of things that such groups are involved in. But language sort of has come last. You would dare not say things about a person's religion, politics, race, gender, but you nevertheless may say, might say, you know, every time he talks, it's like fingernails on a blackboard. So it's been kind of free ring to talk about dumb Southerners because they have a vowel system that's different from you, mm -hmm. uh, or African-Americans who are recalcitrant and don't learn to speak well, as if this was something that they were doing on purpose. Mm -hmm. To speak your native dialect is uh, something that you shouldn't do. Uh, 
But I think we've made a little headway. I know that when we do certain kinds of folk linguistic tasks, like for we, I like to give blank maps to people and say, you know, draw around the areas where people speak differently in the United States and label them. Now, some of that is still pretty harsh and is still clearly focused on areas of the country against which there's a great deal of language prejudice like the South. But we do notice an amelioration of this and a kind of resistance to it. When we ask people questions like, well, which state do they speak the best English in? Mm -hmm. We get little by little, and especially with younger people, an increasing response that says, well, no, there are good and bad speakers in every state. We're beginning to have a little effect, I think, in language education. And certainly, if you come to college and take a linguistics course, this is one of the things you're going to get. But not everybody gets that. Little mm. by little, we're beginning to bring this into schools. Walt Wolfram, for example, in the state of North Carolina, has cooperated with people in the uh, whole state office of education to bring notions of language diversity, respect for local varieties, and so forth into the North Carolina schools with a, with a great deal of success. In this way, one could argue that we are attacking folk ideas but I think we're making use of folk ideas, not really attacking them in trying to bring notions from scientific linguistics and formal studies of language as part of the consideration of what somebody should go through as they go through an educational experience, even at a much lower level than the university. That's great. That's great. I've only recently learned, it might have been from Betsy herself, about the matched guys test as an experimental technique to find out people's attitudes to different accents. That's guys as in disguise rather than these guys. <laughs> yes. So tell us how a matched guys test works. Well, the classic matched guys takes bilingual speakers who therefore have the same voice, right? That is their vocal characteristics are the same. And the first ones were, were done in Quebec, uh, where there were plenty of people who could speak fluent, ordinary Canadian English and fluent, ordinary Canadian French. They then had them perform, say a sentence, and then mixed several other speakers so that they were asked then to judge just the voice of the speaker. And they heard French and they heard English, unknown to them. The speaker of French and the speaker of English was the same person in some cases. Mm -hmm. And yet, even though it was the same voice, and even though there was nothing funny about the English or the French, people gave very different attitudinal ratings. In, in, now, that in, match, in, guys, is very difficult to do because you have to have a fluent bilingual or bidialectal speaker, which may be harder than bilingualism, by the way. Yeah, pretty soon people started doing just a guise, right? where we use different voices and ask people to express attitudes. Now, in folk linguistics, our favorite thing is a silent guise. First, we prepare a folk map of the dialects of an area. So we see that, for example, if you, a lot of people, when they draw maps of Kentucky, will single out Eastern Kentucky. They'll single out the big cities, Louisville and Lexington, so forth, right? Then we show them a version of this map and ask them to give us the attitudes of the people who speak there without listening to them. 
I love this for folk linguistics because then we don't have any of the fall de Raal of worrying, did we get an authentic sample? Did we include a sample we shouldn't have? In this case, in the folk linguistic silent guys, the respondent simply goes inside their head and says, oh yeah, the guys in Eastern Kentucky, they talk this way, they talk that way, they make this noise, they're friendly, they're unfriendly, they're intelligent, they're unintelligent. So what we've done is we've gone from this very elaborate matched guys with bilingual by dialectal speakers just to speech samples. And now within folk linguistics, even to silent guises, where we ask people to characterize the folk areas without actually playing them a speech sample. Interesting. Interesting. Betsy and I talked about the possibility of bi-dialectalism. Betsy told me that some linguists or many linguists uh, and you yourself said it was harder to be bi-dialectal than bilingual, but you don't think it's impossible, right? Because I have many actors and performance people, television and film among my listeners. And uh, of course, their work is predicated on the assumption or the belief or the hope that you can, in fact, fool the natives and be bi-dialectal and get away with it. Well, I think one thing to point out is that it's easier to fool the natives than to be bi-dialectal. And mm -hmm. the upshot of that is that you don't have to be bi-dialectal to fool the natives. Uh, you only have to be dialectal within the environment of your performance. Now, a real bi-dialectal person is a person who can live all of the aspects of his or her life in that dialect. And even though we may have some very well-trained people who sound very convincing, and in some cases uh, show considerable linguistic accuracy, to ask them to go out in the real world and at the same time in that dialect go from their very fanciest speech to their most ordinary speech, to be angry in it, to show a whole range of emotions. And even within a dramatic presentation or a film presentation, that range of emotions is just not possible. And in some cases, the opportunity to be fancier or to be uh, more informal just doesn't present itself. That's what a real bilingual is, and that's why I say it's probably impossible. And maybe bilingualism in the same way uh, is, is not really very convincingly possible, because it asks you to live your entire life in that variety. And when we have these two varieties, whether dialect or language, we seem to have some special areas where we kind of drift to one, but then to another. Yeah. My German is very much like this. It's pretty good but it's not very good for just sitting around and shooting a breeze with a bunch of people. Yeah. My German uh, is probably grammatically better than maybe even my Spanish and Polish, but my Spanish and Polish, which I learned on the ground, cover a good deal more territory. Yes. I can sit around with a bunch of people uh, in Spanish and speak pretty quickly and not across all dialects, of course, but because mine's, mine's Caribbean and that's the only one I've got. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's terrific. Thank you very much. Finally, we're all anxious to judge people on their actions and on their merits and would probably deny that we hold prejudices. But you would argue that we're actually unaware of the prejudices that we may hold based on dialect and accent. I think in many cases we are, and particularly when we deal with varieties which are not that very different from our own. 
It leads us, for example, to sometimes not even recognize the differences that are in our own speech. Uh, some of Nancy Nijelski's very early work showed, for example, that people who live in Michigan and Wisconsin and Western New York, places where the great northern city's vowel shift is going on, are people who don't know that they are going through that vowel shift themselves. Right. And they have some affinity for what they believe to be standard English and don't even recognize their own variety. Folk linguistics talks to people and uses things like map drawing. Social psychology uses such things as match guys. But linguistic anthropology uses conversation and observation of people on the ground. And all of them, all of them show that people have a deep well of feelings about language and varieties, which are nevertheless in the long run related to people, culture, and identities. I don't like the term language attitudes because for me, language attitudes are always people attitudes attached to language. The source is our beliefs about people. Mm -hmm. Language itself couldn't possibly have any of those attributes. How could a verb be dumb? And yet, if somebody <laughs> uses a verb, which is, from your point of view, not standard English, then we call it a dumb verb. But of course, it can't be a dumb verb. It has to be a dumb verb because those people are dumb and have transferred that label to it. If somebody has an awkward way of speaking uh, or, or an unintelligent way of speaking, it comes from our belief that that group or that subgroup, in fact, lacks intelligence or lacks finesse. The Southern gentleman was asked once to draw a map and say, how did people sound in the North? And he said, oh, Northern speech, scratch and claw. What did he mean by scratch and claw? He certainly didn't mean that the language was scratchy or that it was clawing. He meant that people are not hospitable like Southerners, that they're scratching to make a living, they're clawing at each other, and they don't have the relaxed, hospitable feeling that he felt that Southerners do and that Northerners lack. So he transferred that scratch and claw personality as his stereotype of Northerners and laid it right on the top of language. Hmm. Dennis, that's an admirable uh, episode conclusion. Thank you so very much for joining me today. Okay. And thanks to you for joining me, Paul Meyer, and my guest, Dennis Preston. To learn more about him and his work, you'll find a long list of his other media interviews on a huge variety of linguistic topics. Go to paulmeyer.com, choose In a Manner of Speaking from the Other Services tab on the menu bar, and click episode number 74. Don't forget to follow Paul Meyer Dialect Services on Facebook and me on X at Dialect Paul. Join me again next month. On episode number 62, we explored the topic of the world's fastest speakers. I thought, why not explore the world's loudest speakers? So that's exactly what's on the menu next time on In a Manner of Speaking. <laughs>